this happen? How could you let this happen, God? Why, God? Why? How could you let this happen to her? Peter. Hey. Listen, I came as soon as Thanks I could. Thanks for man. coming. How is she? How are you holding up? I don't know. Honestly, I'm, I'm a little angry. I don't know why God would just let this happen to us. Listen, man, why, you, gotta, God? you gotta calm down a little bit, okay? You gotta take a look, find the silver lining in all this. Silver you know, God's line. not just doing this, okay? Like, you gotta, you gotta really, you gotta pray. Pray? Gotta, yeah. Pray. Pray to who? I just don't feel like God is in my life right now. All right, well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to The Well. We're excited that you're here uh, joining us as we're starting a new series today, as you just saw by the, the beautiful skit there. It's called In the Waiting Room. Now, I know that I get sometimes people tell me that every time I start a new series, I say this is going to be the best series ever. I've been told, okay? So I'm not going to say that this time. But what I will say is that this series... It hadn't been a series that I've been so excited to get to like this one in a long time. Because this series, we are going to answer a question that I promise you, I promise you, promise you, promise you, every single person has either asked this question recently, could be asking it right now, or if, thank God, none of those two situations, and you better be prepared because you're going to be asking that question soon. And that question is simply this. That question is, is what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do? We all have things in life, problems, circumstances, relationships. What is it that you do when you have tried to solve the situation and you prayed and you fasted and you did church and you did money in the box, like you did everything, you did everything that you could to solve it and some problems just can't be solved. And all it seems that's happening is that every day I'm trying more and more, and it just seems like I'm getting further and further from the solution. So the question I'm going to answer here, starting today and over the next five weeks, is what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you're in a season of life where it is what it is? What do you do when you're in that season? When let, Let's go through and give some examples. It could be everyone's got something. Let's say it's marriage. Let's say you're in a season in your marriage where it is what it is. And, and on the outside, everything looks fine. 
We smile, we laugh, we joke, we go to people's house for dinner, they come over to our house for dinner, everything looks fine. But we know on the inside it's not fine. And we love God and we don't want to do anything bad, so we're not going to divorce. But he's not going to change and she's not going to change, so we're just going to be miserable. Because there's no solution. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Let's say you're single. Nice, single, beautiful lady, beautiful on the inside, beautiful on the outside, did everything right, did everything right to prepare to be a beautiful bride one day, but everyone is friends and nothing more than friends. And what do you do? What do you do when you know what you can do to attract more guys, but then you're going to be attracting the very guys that you don't want to have anything to do with? So what do you do when there's nothing that you can do? How about professionally? You had a dream of where you would be one day. And I don't want to say that you're not there. I want to say that you will never be there. Something happened. You came to the realization you can never achieve your dream. What you worked your whole life for, you can never achieve it. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What if it's a health problem? Yeah, it's not a fatal problem. You're not going to die. But there's really, the doctor said, there's nothing we can do to get rid of the pain. You're going to be in pain the rest of your life. It's going to debilitating pain, and there's nothing really you can do about it. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? I can continue to go on. What do you do when there's a lost loved one that you can't live without? That no matter how long you spend in this waiting room, the doctor comes out every time and says the same thing, that she's not coming back. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? What I'm talking about here in this series, I'm not talking about small problems. I'm not talking about, my boss said I can't work from home anymore. What do I do? Pray for me. <laughs> I'm talking about the circumstances and the situations in life that 100% affect your ability to be happy. What do you do when there's nothing that you can do? You see, that's why we call this the waiting room. Because I don't know if you've ever spent much time in a waiting room of a hospital. It is the worst place to be in the world. Because everyone is looking at each other with the, with, with the and it, you read in people's mind are, what are you in for? What are you in for? What are you waiting for? And you hope you look at your own situation. After sitting in a waiting room, you cannot complain about the little things that happen to you in life. After you see the mother with the three children and the husband inside, and she's just waiting. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? And she knows what the die. What do you do? You're helpless in a waiting room. You're helpless. It's the worst feeling in the world. Like, I want to go inside there and say, what are you doing? What's the status here? But I wouldn't understand it. And if I didn't understand it, I couldn't do anything about it. It's helpless. Information, not, not, nothing. I'm in a waiting room. My hands are tied. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Unfortunately for many of us, the waiting room has become the new reality of life. The waiting room is no longer a place that we were in for a season. It's become home for us. And we start to put pictures up on the wall in the waiting room. And we live our whole lives in this waiting room, waiting for something that is never going to come. Waiting for a solution that seems to be getting further and further away. Question that we're going to answer this series, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? I know what I could do. But nine out of ten times when you're in the waiting room, any way of fixing the problem usually makes the problem worse. Like I said, back to my example, I'm lonely. I'm single. I'm lonely. I know how I can solve it, but that's most probably going to lead to more long-term loneliness. What do I do when there's nothing I can do? I'll tell you what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to run away. We're tempted to live in denial. No, it's not that big a deal. We're tempted, the biggest temptation is to compare our lives with other people's lives, right? This is what we do. We sit here in my waiting room and we look around and we say, that's supposed to be me. 
And that person, oh, I just got engaged, and we're so happy for you. But we really hate your guts because <laughs> that's supposed to be me. Oh, and they just had another child, and they're so happy, and everyone's so happy. Oh, that's great. and buy you a gift, but I hate your guts too <laughs> because you're living my life. And I've had people tell me this. I've had people tell me. I look around, and I see everyone else is living the life I was supposed to live. And I look at my life, and I say, this wasn't in the script. And if I believe in God, I'm angry at God. If I don't believe in God, I'm still angry at God. I just don't know who I'm angry at. I'm angry. I don't believe in you exist. But I yell at you all the time. But I don't believe in you. But I'm angry at you. And the reason I don't believe in you is because I'm talking to a God I don't believe in. Telling him how angry I am at him. What do you do when there's nothing that you can do? You know the worst thing that happens when you're in the waiting room of life? Is you always end up running into that guy. Do you know who that guy is? We hate that guy. And let's just say it all together. We hate you if you're that guy. That overly Christian guy. Overly Christian. Or girl. Overly Christian. And you know that their life is just so Christian perfect. And they let the whole world know about it on Facebook and Twitter. And you see their perfect life. And then they come to you and you say that you're struggling. And they say, oh, I know how you feel, and you don't know how I feel, but you're just saying that. I know how you feel. You know, I just prayed and had a great miracle happen to me. You see, what happened to me is I lost my keys, okay, and I prayed to God, said, God, I trust in you, and I believe in you, and then um, um, my husband came home from work. He's the great husband, and he's the best, and he came home, and I heard a jingling in the door, and I left my keys in the door, and praise God I found my keys, you want to scream, I hate you. Because you wouldn't know a problem if it bit you on the nose. You want to talk about problems? Let me tell you about my life. Have a seat. I'll take it by the laughter that you can relate. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? I'll tell you what you shouldn't do. Usually when we're in the waiting room of life, we come to three incorrect conclusions. We come to three incorrect conclusions about life, about myself, based on these waiting room seasons of life. And we say, first of all, I'll never be happy again. I'll never be happy again. Oh, for the days of middle school. <laughs> that was when I was happy. I'll never be that carefree again. Oh, for the days of college, when my parents paid for everything. Oh, those were the days. Oh, for the days when we were just dating before we got married. Those were the days. And we convince ourselves that we will never be happy again. Number two, we convince ourselves that nothing good can come of this. Nothing good can come from this, Father Anthony. And don't try to convince me otherwise. Some people go into it with that in mind. They tell you a problem and say, don't sit there and tell me it's a story about some guy in the Bible who prayed and then they got healed and they all live happily ever after and everyone goes to heaven. Don't tell me that because I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to believe it. Nothing good can come from my situation. And then number three, we unfortunately reach the point where we say, there's no point in trying. There's no point in trying. I did everything I could. There's no point in trying anymore. We just give up. As a priest, a lot of my time with people is spent here. A lot of my time is spent here with people with people in these waiting room situations. And I'll be 100% honest, okay? I don't hide nothing. This is not easy for me. 
Me, by my nature, I'm a problem solver. You can ask my wife. Okay. I like to solve problems. I like you come to me. You tell me a problem. I interrupt you after two or three minutes of listening. I've had enough. Okay. And I tell you, do A, B, C, and D and solve the problem. What happens when you come to me and pour out your heart and tell me everything that's happening and I got no answers? I could just say a Bible verse or two and just tell you, pray whatever it is. But anyone who knows me, again, that's not me. Okay, this is why I, this is, I don't negotiate well. I stink at negotiating because I say what I mean. And I can't just say it if I don't mean it. What do you do? Okay, I'll tell you what. You struggle in your waiting room. What if you or me and you stand up here on the stage and in front of the video and all these people see and you tell about how great God is and how big God is and how mighty God is and how loving God is and how powerful. And every week you stand up here and tell people stories of God doing miracles for others. And then someone comes to you and says, well, what about this situation? And there's nothing that you can do. You know what? I'll be honest. Sometimes it's almost easier not to believe in God than to believe in God in the waiting rooms, isn't it? Because we know God is mighty. And I know God is a, I, I'd be better off. Just tell me God can't solve my problem. But I know he can. And he solves people's problems all the time. And I know he parts seas. I know he heals blind. I know he raises the dead. I know many sick people. I know many times that God works. So how come he's not working for me? Like I'd rather believe that God can't because the only other conclusion that I can reach sometimes is that God doesn't want to. God doesn't care. Maybe that's what it is. It's like God, maybe God doesn't see me. Maybe I'm not significant. Or maybe even worse, he sees me, he's able, but he doesn't want to. Passage in the Gospel according to St. Mark, the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, the guys closest with him, they went through a similar waiting room period. One time they were out at sea in a boat, and it says a great windstorm arose. Compare this to your own life, because this, this is how life is. A great windstorm arose. The waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on the pillow. Isn't that fitting? Isn't that our life? Isn't that our life? Here we are. We're your disciples. We're doing everything right, and a storm arises. And where is he? He's doing what? Asleep. And asleep where? On a pillow. Not just asleep, but asleep on a pillow. And the disciples, they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care we are perishing? This is the fundamental question of life, I believe. When you're in this waiting room, Teacher, do you care or you don't care? Like, I'm suffering. Do you care or not care? I know you, I know you can see, and I know that you know. But do you care or you don't care? We're going to delve into this question over the next five weeks. And our goal is going to be to answer the question, what do you do when there's nothing that you can do? But before I get into it, okay, before, I'm going to preface, okay, before I get into answering the question of where are you, God, and do you care, God, let's, let's say something up front. We're all a little bit of a hypocrite. All of us. There's a little bit of hypocrisy in us asking that question of God. And the reason why I say there's a little bit of hypocrisy, because we like to think of the hypocrites as the people outside. There's a little hypocrisy in this room here today, too. Because you know and I know that as much as today you're saying, where are you, God, and how come God? Uh, there was a point in time in your life. It could have been a day. could have been a weekend. could have been a spring break. It could have been a summer. It could have been years 
where you wanted nothing to do with God. And you pushed God as far away as he could go. And God said, you want me in your life? And you said, no, thank you. Because God, I got a night of fun planned, and God ain't in the fun. I got a night of godlessness planned. I got a weekend of godlessness of just sin. I got reservations for sin at eight. Okay, the trunk is in the, in, in the cooler's in the trunk. We got sin on ice. Like we got a weekend of sin planned and we don't want to have anything to do with you, God. There's always, for every single one of us, there's been a time in life we push God as far away as possible. And I'm telling you, in those times, you now know the answer to this question. When I pushed God away, was he still with me? Was he still with me? Absolutely. And as much as I wanted to push him away, he wasn't going to go anywhere. And if I'd have just looked for him in the right place, I'd have found him. But I didn't want to see him. Well, I'm telling you, in the same way that we pushed God away and he was still there, that today, when I don't see him with me, and when I don't feel him with me, and I feel like I'm all by myself, if I couldn't push him away before, then you couldn't push him away right now. That's why what I want to say is this. Here's our, our, our kind of our key thought for this series, all right? Is that when you are in the waiting room, I told you about the wrong conclusions that we come to, that we can never be happy, that no good can come from this and that. There's no point in trying. Let me tell you the truth is that when you are in the waiting room of life, God, number one, is not absent. God, number two, is not apathetic. God, number three, is not angry. God is not absent. God is not apathetic. God is not angry. He feels absent. We feel like he's not there. But just the same way, like I said, when I pushed him away, he was there. And this same way right now, I will never mistake God's silence for God's absence. Two completely different things, and we'll get into that. Number two, God is not apathetic. Sometimes we think of God as up there, and, and we say, God, my problem. And he says, uh, uh, what, what, what's your name again? Who are you again? Oh, yeah, uh, number uh, 4,600. Yeah, yeah, take a number. Like, we, I got pro you know what's going on in the world? Okay, we got big problems. We got homeless. We got cancer. Man, you see what's going on in the Middle East these days? Man, take a number. Sometimes that's how we feel God is. Like, God doesn't really care. God cares. He's not apathetic. And number three, the one that we all trip up in is God is not angry. I can't tell you how many people come to me, say, we're waiting to have a child. Father Anthony, what did I do wrong that God won't give me a child? What did I do? Why is God angry with me? God is not absent. God is not apathetic. God is not angry. So what is God? God is with us. God is with us. Let me hear you say that. God is, God is with us. And there's a verse in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, that talk about the birth of Christ. Angel came to Virgin Mary and said, Behold, virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. I'm sorry, that was a prophecy from the Old Testament, okay, where, where uh, Isaiah the prophet said, At one point in time, there's going to be a child born, and his name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel literally means God with us, and that's what we celebrate with the birth of Christ. And we should always, always, always remember that God is not absent. God is not apathetic. God is not angry. God is with us. Whether we see him or don't see him, that's a different story. We'll get into that. Whether we feel him or don't feel him. Whether we know what he's doing or not, that's a different story. We'll get into that. But today what we're trying to do right here, the way I'm looking at this series, is you know what triage is? All right? So when there's, when there's like a whole bunch of people wounded, all right, triage comes in and, and takes like the most serious cases first. 
So one guy who's got like a, a broken pinky, okay, we leave him to the side. The guy who's bleeding out of his brain, okay, we'll take that guy first. So that, that, that's what we're doing here today. And we're going to get into all the how do we act and how do we respond and what do we, we're going to get into all that. But the number one thing that we all need to leave here in full agreement, 100%, is that no matter what my situation is, that God is with us. He is Emmanuel, and there's never a situation, no matter how apathetic, no matter how angry, no matter how absent he seems, there's no situation where God is not Emmanuel, where he is not God with us. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 41, which says, fear not, God says to us, fear not, for I am with you. Some of us need to circle this verse in our Bibles or put it up in a, in a place. Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's nothing you can do today, tomorrow, the next day, the rest of your life to make him not Emmanuel. There's nothing you can do. You did it. You tried to push him away. You did everything that you could, and he was still with you. And in the same way, in your waiting room today, whether you're aware of it or not aware of it, he is God with you. Now, as I say that, I can read some of your minds. Some of you, especially those who may not know me very well, you have a right to ask yourself a fair question. Who are you, Father Anthony, and why you preach this stuff to us? And you probably sitting there and saying to yourself, thinking one of two things probably. Like I said, number one, you might be thinking, that nothing bad ever happens to me. That it's easy for you to say, Father Anthony, nothing bad ever happens. You never have to go to these waiting rooms. You never have these doubts. You never have these struggles. And I say, if that's what you're thinking, you are 100% wrong. Because you know what? You got your waiting rooms. I got my waiting rooms. And I got my waiting room plus your waiting room because I visit you in your waiting room as well. So I ain't just carrying my own waiting rooms. I'll be honest, my own waiting rooms are easy. What really troubles me is your waiting rooms. Because I'll be honest, I'm 100% honest. There are some times when you come and sit with me, you tell me your situation, and I find myself struggling with doubts as well. And I find myself saying, you know what? Maybe she's right, God. Maybe you are angry with her. Did she do something? So you know what, God? Maybe, maybe, she's, maybe he's right. Maybe you're not fair. Because I don't see you treat this person this person this way. Why, God, you won't answer? It's harder for me because you can doubt and then ask me, and I have to know the answer. But when I doubt, and I'm the answer guy, like if the calculus teacher doubts calculus, then we're all in trouble. So anyone who says that I don't go through my waiting groups, that's false. I ain't speaking to you just nonsense. I'm speaking to you the truth. And the second thing you might say is, like I said earlier, is that I'm just insincere. And again, anyone who knows me knows I ain't saying nothing that I don't believe in. If I don't believe in it, I walk off the stage and I won't say it. That's just who I am. So what I want to share with you is how I get through these waiting room periods. Because like I said, I struggle with it too. Let me share with you kind of the formula that's like the, the mindset that's in my mind to help me through these periods and hopefully it can be a help to you as well. I find myself looking for examples of people that I can follow in their footsteps. So what I'm looking for is this. I'm asking myself, I feel like God has left me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't want to solve my problem. Like, I, I feel like God has left me. Can I find other examples of people who God loved dearly? God loved dearly, but they felt that way too. Can I find examples of people whom God cared for and God had a great plan for their life, 
but they went through these waiting room periods where they felt abandoned by God as well? The answer is, yes, we can. And this is why I told you this a million times, I'll tell you a million more times. I don't know how anybody gets through this life without reading their Bible on a regular basis. Because if you ain't reading your Bible and you're not in there and you are not finding inspirational stories, because I got news for you, the guys who wrote the Bible, not even who the Bible speaks about, but the guys who wrote the Bible, the majority of them, the vast majority of them lived a very difficult life. And the very people who penned these words, Isaiah, who penned these words, fear not for I am with you, lived a life where everyone around him said, God has abandoned that guy. Every single person who wrote to us, the scriptures, the majority, I shouldn't say every, majority of them live these tough lives. So if I can go into the scriptures and I can find examples of people who have been loved by God, but felt abandoned. And then I just, I don't even want to just go through the scriptures. I want to go through life. And that's one of the things that I hope to do, we hope to do more here, okay, is bring more examples of real people, all right, people, okay, not just me talking my experience, but real people telling experiences and sharing of how they've been through these waiting rooms and how God got them through it. If I can find examples for those things, then that gives me hope and it gives me encouragement. We're going to see two examples today, both from the scriptures, one example that you probably know very well and one maybe not so well, okay? First one we're going to look at is a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And for those of you who don't know, John the Baptist is called the Baptist. doesn't mean he was Baptist. Okay, someone confused. Okay, like uh, some would say like John the Baptizer. Okay, the one who baptized many people. But we don't, he wasn't, he wasn't Baptist, okay? okay. But who he was... <laughs> Who he was, that's honest, like some people, you know, it's, you know, that's fine. Who he was, John the Baptist, is a very important person in the history of the New Testament in the life of Christ. Played a very important role. We're going to pick up his story in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is out one day with his disciples and it says this. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John the Baptist... And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John, who baptized Christ, who baptized so many people, sent two of his disciples to Christ to ask him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the coming one? Yes or no? We need to take a step back here and get a little context for this, and then we'll come back to it. Who is John? I told you he's a very important person. John is a very important person for three reasons. First of all, he is a relative of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, His mom and Jesus' mom were relatives somehow. Cousin, second cousin, we don't know exactly how they were related, but they were related. So he was a cousin or what's called a kinsman of Christ. Okay, Back then, they just called everyone cousins. That meant like... Like, all of us are cousins, all right? That's just what they said. They used the word brother to mean cousin, and cousin to mean anybody who descended from Adam and Eve, basically, all right? It was a cousin. So him and Christ were related. Second thing is, he had a very important role. He was called the forerunner. The forerunner meant he was the one who came before Christ. Christ said, I need to come to this earth and teach people about God. But before I come, someone needs to come before me and lay the foundation so I can build on top of that. But not anybody could build the foundation. Like, who can lay the foundation? Who can prepare the way for Christ himself? John could. And he was prophesied in the Old Testament that someone special is going to come. This was John. Other reason why he's very important. 
is Jesus said about this man, Jesus said about this man, probably the greatest compliment he gave to any human being on the planet, where he said about John, that this from all those born among women, means everybody, everyone's been born among a woman, from all those born among women, there's not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty good compliment. Like, I, I'll take top 10. Okay, Jesus says, among those born of women, you're top 10. I'll take that. John was number one. So clearly, I can say about John that God loved him. I can say about him that Jesus really, really cared about him, that he had a special place in Jesus' heart. Cousin, forerunner, preparing his way, and a little something called the greatest from those born among women. Clearly, Jesus was not absent with him. Jesus was not apathetic towards him. Jesus was not angry with him. Clearly, none of those things. However, where is John sitting right now while, he, while this story is taking place? John is sitting in prison. How did he get in prison? Well, the story goes, John got into a little bit of political problems. Okay? He was kind of a, uh, he was a rebel. Okay? He didn't, like he was. So there was this guy who was king. His name was King Herod. Herod, his name was Herod Antipas. Okay, he was the king during the time of John the Baptist. He is the son of the Herod who was king during the time when Jesus was born, all right, who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. Okay, so this was Herod the Great is who he's referred to. And then he had a son whom he named Herod Antipas. He also had another son whom he named Herod Philip. The guy liked his name. Those two Herods who are brothers had a niece named Herodias. It was like some kind of ego trip thing, all right? You just named everyone after yourself. They were not very creative. So you had Herod the Great killed all the babies. Then he went away. His son, Herod Antipas, is now the king. He had a brother, Herod Philip. They had a niece, Herodias. And we had a little love triangle taking place here. So if this isn't weird enough that they're all named the same name, Herod Philip married Herodias. Don't ask. Back then, somehow, it was okay. Herod Philip married his niece, Herodias. Herod Philip went away on a business trip to Rome. While he was gone, Herodias became friendly with Herod Antipas. And while he was gone, by the time he had come back, she had left Herod Philip, Uncle Herod Philip, and she had married Uncle Herod Antipas. Too bad there was no reality TV back then, huh? <laughs> John, never one shy, saw this situation, and he spoke up and said, this ain't right. He says it this way. Mark chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. For Herod himself, this is Herod Antipas, had laid hold, had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. See that? Herodias, Herod, Antipas, married Herodias, and then John was going around. John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And the story the tradition teaches us that he was always saying, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And they said that, that it was almost like a voice in their heads even after John had died, that they would see visions of John saying, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And that's, he kept preaching that message. Herod, because he was a king, didn't care much. He didn't, didn't bother him too much. But Herodias, this was not good for her. And she was not happy. So Herodias orchestrated it 
that John would be sent for and taken to prison and kept in a prison fortress in a city called Machaerus. Machaerus, which we'll see on a map in a little bit. Machaerus was where Herod had a fortress built for himself way out in the desert, and John was sent to this prison dungeon. And when you were sent out to the desert dungeon, it was not like, it's not like, not like today where you have like your rights and three meals a day and, and, and none of that kind of stuff. Don't believe none of the stuff in the movies. Back there, they sent you to a dungeon. They sent you to a dungeon and they didn't care about you. They didn't feed you. you if you had friends to bring you food, you ate. If you didn't, no one cared. They just throw you in there and they come one day and if you're dead, they just throw you out. Being in the inner dungeon was the worst place imaginable. And that is where John is sitting. So while John is here in Machaerus, his disciples come to him. And he tells his disciples, go back to Jesus and ask him, are you the Messiah or not? Now, why did John tell them to ask? There's two theories on this. Some people say because John had begun to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah. Because clearly before that, John knew he was the Messiah. When he baptized him, he said, this is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So some people say John began to doubt that. And we would understand why he was doubting that the guy's rotten away in prison. Most people, first of all, if this is what you believe, that's fine. It doesn't take away, like, John was a human being. So it doesn't take away from the greatness that he was if he had a doubt. We all have doubts. It doesn't take away from that. However, it's commonly held that that was not what was taking place, is that John was sending his disciples to go to Jesus because it was his disciples who began to doubt. And why would his disciples doubt? Because here they are with Jesus, and they see miracle, 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 miracle. And then the forerunner, the cousin, the, 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 the one who's the greatest, is rotting away in prison. So are you who you say you are, or you're not who you say you are? And if you are, how come my, 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 my master, how come John's in prison? Are you the Messiah? Are you God or not God? And he sent them to ask. In, Mar in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus found out, okay, to show you why the disciples of John were struggling. When Jesus found out that John was in prison, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, I'm not going to show you the rest of that verse yet. What do you think it says next? What do you think it says next? What should it say? What should it say? When the Bible says that the servant of the Lord, the forerunner, the cousin, the greatest of those born among women, the one who prepared the way for you, the one who told everyone to follow you, is now in prison. What should it say? It should say, Jesus. Yeah, it should say, Jesus freed him. It should say, at least Jesus visited him. Okay? At least Jesus went and, and, and you know, like, made a key. Like, he can make stuff. Make a key. Give him the key. Okay? At least, like, send a letter. Send a care package. Send five loaves and two fish. Turn the guards into five loaves and two fish. Like, do something. It should say, he had heard that he'd been put in prison, and then he did something about it. You want to know, what does the Son of God, God incarnate, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty God, do when his faithful servant is waiting in the prison? Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. He went to a place called Galilee. He went from Nazareth to Capernaum. Galilee is like the area, like the county, the region. 
Okay, he went to Capernaum. What does that mean? Just look at a map. I don't know if y'all can see clearly here. Jesus was hanging out in Nazareth, okay, in Nazareth over there. John was hanging out in Machaerus, this little black line right here. That's the Jordan River. It goes from the Sea of Galilee down here, okay. Machaerus is south, southeast. Nazareth is up there, and Capernaum is up there. So when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison in Machaerus, we expected that he would go here. But where did he go? He went here. The one who is your forerunner, is the faithful, is stuck there. And you said, oh, it's very important that we now go here. Okay, what's life like in Capernaum? Well, this is a picture of Machaerus. Okay, this is modern day. If you were to go to Israel, Herod's temple, okay, is still like a, a site that you can go visit. And this is what it looks like right here. Middle of nowhere, up on a high mountain, middle of nowhere. Here actually is like a, a, a diagram of what it looked like back in the day of John the Baptist. And this was a fortress, and look at what's surrounding it. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. This is where John is hanging out. This is where John's going to spend the rest of his life. Jesus is in Capernaum. Capernaum is by the sea. You want to know what Capernaum looks like? John is, and Jesus is. Where's Jesus? While John is rotting in prison, what's Jesus doing? He's at the beach. He's at the beach. He's kicking back. Got a nice five loaves and two fish sandwich. Like he's just kicking back, chilling out, doing miracles, hanging. And he didn't go there until he found out John was there. How are you feeling if you're John? How are you feeling if you're John? You want to make it worse? Hold that thought. You know how you feel now? You want to make it worse? Watch this. Let's go back to the verse that we started with here. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Watch what Jesus says. Watch how Jesus responds. You already annoyed about that he left you there. He's in Capernaum. You're in Machaerus. How does he respond to his disciples who say, are you the coming one or not? Our master is asking. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What is Jesus doing? It seems like he's rubbing it in, isn't he? I come to church. I got problems. I need help. I need God. What happens when I come to church? God is so great. He solved this person, this person, this. He solved everyone's problems. He just solves problems, 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 problems. He solves them. Like water in the wine. Walk on water. Like anything God can do. Dead, he raises the dead. Blind, he heals the blind. So what about me? Jesus told the disciples of John, tell John he can believe in me. Why? Because of everything I do for everybody else except him. I ain't making this stuff up. 
This is why, by the way, this is a side note, anyone who doubts the authenticity of the Gospels of the New Testament, if I was making up a religion, I would not put this in there. I wouldn't, would you put this in there? Jesus, by the beach, tell him, tell him everything I've done for everyone else. If I'm making up a religion, I'm not putting this in there. The only reason I'm putting this in there is because this is what it says. When you're in the waiting room, doesn't it seem like everyone else is getting their prayers heard and everyone else is getting their miracles done and everyone else is solving their problems? Everyone except me. And we put on the happy face and we put on the smile and the church and the praise God, the hallelujah. We put on the face. But deep inside, it is crushing. If that's how you feel, you're in good company because that's where John the Baptist was. And after Jesus said this verse, he said another verse, which we probably don't understand, which you may have read before, but you probably didn't understand it. But hopefully now you will get it. Next verse after this, Jesus says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. After Jesus says, tell John, the blind see, the lame are healed, the deaf hear, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You know what that verse says? Blessed is the one who when he sees, when he's in the waiting room and everyone else seems to be getting their prayer answered, blessed is the one who still trusts in me when he seems, when it seems like nothing's working. Blessed is he who trusts that my silence does not equal my absence. Blessed is the one who is not offended and stumbles on account of me and my ways of doing things. Because you have your ways as humans, we, I have my ways as God, and the distance between my ways and your ways are big. Blessed is the one who can trust in my ways, even when they are so night and day different from your ways. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's John. That's the story that you may not have heard. Second story, I bet you're probably more familiar with. We're going to a story of a guy named Lazarus. Story of John ends with John dying in prison. Story of Lazarus ends a little bit different. Fast forward now to kind of the end of Christ's ministry a little bit. And by this point in time, Jesus is very famous. All the people love him. All the people think that this is the Messiah. And they say, this is the guy who's going to give us freedom. And everyone worships him. He does all kinds of miracles. And while Jesus is in the midst of like the height of his popularity and powers and miracles, he gets some bad news one day from a friend. John 11, verse 3. Therefore, Jesus is out with his disciples, and they're just hanging out and preaching, do what they do. Then the sisters sent to him, the sisters of a guy named Lazarus, sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Lord, he whom you love is sick. I just want to pause right there before I go to the rest of that story. What happens to you if you're sitting there at work? And you get a message from the secretary, interrupts your meeting, says, he whom you love is sick. What do you do? What goes through your mind? Like, if I go and someone comes to me, the one whom you love, like no name, no name. Like it's not so-and-so is sick or so-and-so. The one whom you love. I mean, that person who's really, really close to you. Like someone comes and says to me, the one whom you love is sick, I automatically think of my wife. Or my kids, the one whom you love is sick, like someone really, really close. You're sitting there at work, and someone says, the one whom you love is sick. What do you do? What do you do? You're in a board meeting. You're making a presentation. You're answering it. Like, you're somewhere, the one whom you love is sick. What? Excuse me? 
How? Where? Let's go. We gotta do something. The one whom you love is sick. This is in code red kind of a situation. Action needs to be taken. Now imagine, not that you are at work, but imagine you're Jesus. You are the one who just yesterday healed 10,000 strangers. Entire villages. Jesus would go and it says, heal all their sick. Jesus healed people he never even heard of, never going to see again. And now, the one whom you love is sick. What do you do? This is a no-brainer. Okay. Let's roll. What does Jesus do? John eleven five. 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Jesus was close friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were brothers. They were two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus loved them, hung out at their house. Jesus was very tight with them. Lazarus gets sick, and they tell him. Mary and Martha sent to him and say, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. And he knows exactly who that is. And because Jesus loved them so much, what did he do? The disciples said, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. We just heard. And they all got up and packed their bags. And he said, have a seat. Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. Let's go do some miracle. What's for lunch? Lazarus starts off sick, but he gets sicker, and he gets sicker, and he gets sicker, and eventually he dies. But Jesus is still sitting right there. The disciples thinking to himself, I know he loves him. I know he's here. I know he's not angry with him. I know he cares. So why he's not doing anything? <clears throat> I'm going to stop the story there. And for those of you who know the story, you know that it ends with Lazarus being raised from the dead. That's not the point of the story, though. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story, like I want to be, that's why I'm stopping here. I don't want the message to be, that God loves you, he's with you, he's going to solve all your problems. That is not the point of the story, because that's the exception. John the Baptist got his head cut off in prison. In his waiting room, ended up with his head getting cut off. All the apostles and disciples, except one of them, all of them end up getting killed as well. So Lazarus eventually makes it out. God does a miracle for him, but that is the exception, not the rule. So don't think that I'm sitting here saying, be patient, God's going to answer you. That's not what I'm saying. My goal here today my goal here today, I had one goal that I prayed about and prayed about and prayed about. My goal was to create in your mind a new category. We have in our minds categories, if-then statements. If I'm good, then God will do this for me. If I'm bad, then God won't do this for me. If my life looks like this, that means God loves me. If my life looks like this, that means God doesn't care. We have categories. I want to create a new category in everyone's mind. That says that God can love me dearly, can care about me more than anyone else in the universe, and I can have miserable problems in my life. A new category. I can be in prison in Macaris, in the middle of the desert, and God can be so powerfully with me, caring about me, loves me. I want to create a category in my mind that looks at the circumstance, the waiting room circumstances and doesn't connect that with God's love for me, his care for me, or his ability to solve. For Mary and Martha, at this moment in time, 
they're thinking to themselves, he doesn't love us. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't want to solve it. Because if he did, then he would. John's disciples, if he did love him, then he would. We're creating a new category here today. It says that God loves you more than you can imagine. And your waiting room is not indicative of his lack of love for you. Doesn't mean that he is absent. Doesn't mean that he's apathetic. Apathetic. It doesn't mean that he's angry with you. Is that an easy message? It's easy here. It's hard here. It's easy here. It's hard here. And I want to tell you, from the bottom of my heart, I know it's hard. And I don't want anyone to think, like I make jokes and I laugh and I try to make it, okay, funny. And, but I know when you get out of this room and you go back to your waiting room, it's not funny. And I know that. I know it's painful. And I know we sit here and talk and we say stuff. But I know the reality that's waiting for you out there is not easy. But I'm telling you with all my heart that God is not absent. God is not apathetic. And God is certainly not angry with you. God is with us. And we together are going to find out just like when we pushed him away, he was with us. We're going to now embrace him. And we're going to see him with us so powerfully, so strongly. And we're going to see that over the coming weeks. But we must be convinced that this category exists, that it doesn't, it's, not, it's not indicative of something I did or something that he stopped love. It's none of that stuff. In the beginning, remember those three statements that we said? Okay, well, we said that I'd never be happy again, that nothing good can come from this, and there's no point in trying. Well, now that I know about Emmanuel... Now that I know that God is with me, I'm going to flip each of those three statements and I'm going to say this. Now that I know that God is with me, I can be happy again. Something good will come from this and there's purpose in my pain. Let's say those together. Okay, we need to say that together. Let's say it all together. Number one. Number one, I can be happy again. No, say it. Stress on I can. Say it. I can be happy again. That no matter how miserable my, my life may seem today, and no matter how much it was good and it's been so bad, I can be happy again. Number two, say it with me. Something good will come from this. No, stress on will. Something good will come from this. That I may not see it today. And I may not see it tomorrow or the next day, but I trust there'll come a point in time, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years. I'm going to look back on this and I'm going to say that was the worst time in my life. That was the best time in my life because the best thing out of my life that happened came out of that period of my life because that's where I learned God's ways. I learned how to, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. And I learned that in those tough times. Something good will come from this. And then number three, there is purpose in my pain. Say that with me. There is purpose in my pain. God is not absent. God is not apathetic. And God is certainly not angry. You know what? Some of us, sometimes the best therapy, sometimes we just need to hear ourselves say this again. And if you struggle with this, man, take this home and just say it to yourself tomorrow morning. Say, you know what? I can be happy again. Something good will come from this, and there is purpose in my pain. Sometimes you just need to hear yourself say it to believe it, that it can happen. I know that uh, those waiting room periods in life, they aren't easy. But if there's ever a season in life, if there's ever a season in life where no matter how dark the night may seem, we know that the star will shine again. It's this Christmas season. It's a season of hope. It's a season where God, in the midst of darkness, Emmanuel came, and God shined his light. And you know what? In the beginning, it was just a little baby light, and a lot of people didn't know it. A few, a few shepherds caught wind of it, some wise men, but the vast majority... This earth had no idea that the light was there. That they had no idea that God was with us. They had no idea God was with them. But eventually they found out.
this is a season where we know that God is with us. And it's my prayer that over the next five weeks together that we, that we understand what do you do when there's nothing you can do. Let's stand together and say a prayer, please. <clears throat> In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you that you are Emmanuel and you are God with us. And we thank you that even when we push you away, you won't leave us. Lord, we really need you during these times. We need you when, when we can't feel you and we can't see you and we can't understand you. But we know that you are with us. And I pray, Lord, that during this series, during this, these coming weeks, that you would reveal yourself to us and that you would teach us to trust in you and to understand your ways more and to not be offended by you, but to trust, Lord, that your absence, that your silence never equals your absence. But you're always Emmanuel, God with us. Pray, Lord, for those who are struggling to feel your presence in their life, those who are struggling to believe that you are with them. Pray, Lord, that you would work mightily in their hearts, mightily in their lives during this coming week. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you all very much. Have a great week.